Right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to the LSE. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, my name is Abby Innes. I teach the political economy of Central and East European uh, Europe here at the European Institute, and I'm your chair for this evening. Um, tonight's lecture is part of the European Institute APCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe series. And not surprisingly, these uh, lectures have evolved this year into a running debate about the merits of austerity versus more Keynesian-inflected solutions to the Eurozone crisis and to our uh, common financial woes. Now that France has elected a socialist, Francois Hollande, it is clear that this dispute is now coming to a head. If Monsieur Hollande stands in the red corner of what we might call the economist's uh, boxing ring, it seems to me that our guest uh, stands resolutely in the blue. Um, it gives me very great pleasure to welcome Professor Leszek Baltarowicz, uh, one of the great architects of Polish reform and a former Deputy Prime Minister, Finance Minister, and indeed Governor of the National Bank of Poland. Not during the same time. It's <laughs> <laughs> an impressive list. Uh, he will talk this evening about the Eurozone's awkward threesome, fiscal stance, oh. macroeconomic stability, and growth. And let me thank you, sir, for your matchless timing in taking on this subject for us this evening. Um, Professor Balcerowicz will speak for between 20 and 30 minutes. Oh. Uh, and this will leave us uh, a remaining 30 minutes for questions and discussions. And for those of you who indulge in such things, the Twitter hashtag uh, for this event is hash LSE Eurozone, all one word. <coughs> and Professor Baltarevich, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. <coughs> well, I will skip most of my presentations because it's very <laughs> ambitious. But I would not jump directly to discussing French and the results of French or Greek elections. We can have a discussion on that later. I think what is happening in the Eurozone is a special case of broader problems, <coughs> not reserved for the Eurozone. So I start with uh, sketching these broader problems, and then I will come to the specificity of the Eurozone. Now the problem... Out, please. Should I start from scratch? No, not necessarily. Okay, so so what I wanted to say is that uh, Europe, what is happening in the Eurozone is a special case of broader problems. And these broader problems are related to excessive spending, either fiscal or private sector spending, which is always financed by excessive credit growth. <coughs> So this is a, so uh, you can discuss the European Eurozone problems with mentioning the fiscal stance or what is the state of public finance, and I mentioned this very briefly. When you have problems with the fiscal stance, it means that there's excessive spending in most cases nowadays. You can't say that taxes are too low when spending exceeds 40%, and taxes then are correspondingly very high. This is the data which shows the dynamics of spending during the last 100 years from around 10% to between 40 and 60%. And what was driving the overall budgetary spending? Not the spending on highways, not the spending on culture, not the spending on science, social spending, welfare state. So largely, fiscal problems are largely the result of the expansion and bad structure of the welfare states. And 
This brings me to the two types of uh, what I call bad fiscal stance from the point of view of long-term economic growth. The first time when the public finance acts as a systematic break, not, not a drama, just a systematic break on the crisis, and this is nothing ideological. We have a lot of empirical research which links some welfare states, or at least I will skip it. There's a lot of research which shows how various types of social transfer tend to lower labor supply, so you have lower employment and private savings. So these are the main links, even though they are not the only links between some forms and structure and sizes of the welfare state and longer-term economic growth, and you see it in many countries of the uh, European Union. By the way, I think European Union should stop equating the so-called European model with a large and usually badly structured welfare state. Or at least they should, they should see the costs, which are social costs. Unemployment is a social cost. And it can be related in the empirical way to some forms and uh, instruments of the welfare state, but this is not the main, main, main focus. My main focus is on the second type of a bad fiscal stance, which are more dramatic, which are crises. And just to link the crises, which are breakdowns in growth, to longer term growth, I illustrate, I, this is the illustration, uh, comparison of two countries, Spain and Mexico. Look that in 1950, they had the same per capita income, 1960, and then they strongly diverged. This is part of the book I published recently. We find out that the main reason for this strong divergence between Mexico and Spain was the fact that Mexico suffered three domestically produced crises, bad policies, lack of discipline, and this has led to huge gap. So, crisis matter for the longer-term economic growth, and by the way, why one of the topics which is surprisingly, surprisingly under-research are the consequences of various crises for the longer-term economic growth exactly. They are very different. Okay, now I find it useful to distinguish two types of crisis in the way of stylized facts. They differ in the sequence. The first one starts with the financial or banking crisis, it's a special case, and which spills over to the fiscal, and call it British type, United States type, Spanish, Irish. The second type is the reverse sequence, it starts with fiscal, which spills over to financial sector. And I will briefly mention first and second. Now the approximate reason for both, as I said, Excessive growth of spending always, or almost always fueled by credit. This, in the first type, it starts with the private sector boom, which fuels uh, budget revenues, like in Ireland or in Spain or in Britain, until the crisis. Boom usually gives rise to the bust, and then the ramasta, and then it spills over to the fiscal because revenues are declining sharply, and the public debt explodes. The proximate reason for the bust is the boom. So there's no bust without the boom. But what are the root causes of the bust, of the boom, private sector boom? It's a big debate in economics. 
and in uh, the public opinion. I think the prevailing view is the, the uh, new types of market failures, so inherent instability of the financial sector. What is usually overlooked, I think, is the role of wrong policies. And here is just the list, which is not complete, of policies which have been empirically found to contribute to excessive growth of credit. We can come to that, including loose monetary policy before the credit boom, or politicized credit allocation, like with the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are not market institutions, or wrong regulations, like zero weights regarding with respect to bank lending to the governments, and the list is pretty long. So if you want to prevent future financial fiscal crisis, you have to identify the root causes, not approximate causes, and I don't think this has been done so far to a sufficient extent. Okay. Now the second type of uh, fiscal financial crisis is fiscal financial crisis. It starts, the approximate reason is systematic overspending which is usually social spending, welfare spending, and public administration, whenever you have systematic overspending. This, uh, there's a point after which you have a fiscal crisis, which spills over to the financial sector, call it the Greek scenario. Why it spills over? Because somebody has to buy the debt. Who buys the government debt? Who bought the government debt in Greece? Mostly Greek banks. Who bought the Spanish uh, government debt? Spanish banks. So we have a home bias. So fiscal problems spill over, financial problems spill over to the financial sector. What are the root causes of the tendency to systematic overspending? It's another huge subject, which is something for political science or public choice. I would say uh, in many countries you have a destructive the political competition is destructive, which means politicians compete with the promises of more spending, even though the public debt to GDP is high. There are differences in degree. I am not, well, I, I am not saying that dictatorships are better. No. <laughs> because the, most dictators want to appease the population with more spending. And there are some unpleasant side effects of dictatorship. So you have to find solutions within democracy. Well, how you make have to work at the public opinion so that political competition becomes more reasonable and less people believe that politicians can be Santa Claus. Santa Claus, you know the figure. It appears at Christmas, usually, normally. But in politics, uh, it appears all the time. So they have to be unmasked. And there is a permanent job because the supply of Santa Clauses in politics is inexhaustible. The second, so there's a tendency for destructive competition in a modern uh, political system while constraints on the government spending has been weak. Uh, so it makes sense, given the tendency of such a competition to introduce constraints, the best way in the constitutional manner and I give you example, an example I know the best. The best part of the Polish constitution is a constitutional break on the public debt. 
the public debt according to the Polish Constitution, which was enacted in 1997, cannot exceed 60%, and there are some lower thresholds. This is not an ideal solution, but I am sure without that, Poland's public debt would be higher than 60%. But to introduce these thresholds and to maintain them again, you have the fiscally conservative public opinion to a sufficient extent. Okay, now, what usually happens after the financial fiscal crisis? A very brief overview. Well, you have sometimes bailouts, official crisis lending. So far it has been reserved for uh, IMF. Now you have a creation of European institutions which uh, are supposed to play a similar role. There is a talk of central banks playing the role of lender of last resort. And I think this concept has been hugely stretched. Until three years ago, no, there was no mention that lender of last resort would cover uh, central banks creating money in order to buy government bonds. So there is a terminological invention with serious consequences. I will skip that. Uh, in the past, uh, public debt was reduced by inflation. But you can reduce in this way only domestic debt. And fortunately, from my point of view, it's not that easy this time because you would have to return to repress financial sector. So you have to take control of uh, interest rates, as it was the case uh, in the West too, in the 60s and 70s. Finally, uh, there is a debt reduction, which may be outright. If it is negotiated, you call it just a debt reduction. If it is not unilateral, you call it default. But the substance is the same. And, and uh, ultimately, you have fiscal consolidation and uh, various structural reforms. Now, a very brief comment. The first one, bailouts do not solve problems. They may come by time. And with respect to large countries, you don't have large enough bailouts. What sort of a bailout would be necessary to, uh, to try to solve Italian problems? or French problems, not sufficient. So I would say there's no European, if you think that European solution means bailouts, there is no European solution for Italian problems, no Italian solution for the French problems, there's Italian solution for Italian problems, and there's a French solution for the French problems. What is the solution? Sufficient package of reforms which would address the main deficiencies. They differ depending on the kind of the disease. And by the way, I think in the discussion how to deal with the crisis in some countries of the Eurozone, there has been excessive focus on bailouts. And partly it is because people usually, I notice, assume that reforms are necessary, but they can bring benefits in the longer term like increased productivity or increased employment. What about the short term? Only bailouts. But is it true that reforms bring, uh, bring uh, benefits only in the longer term? Well, in some cases, if you properly structure them, they bring reform in the shorter term. And I call it confidence effects. If you have very high yields on your government bonds, and if you start proper reforms, 
the yields can decline. <coughs> so without waiting for the ultimate results of these reforms, and this was the case among other countries of uh, Bulgaria, the Baltics, Ireland. So you don't have to wait till the completion of pension reform to get some effects from the financial markets. Okay, now I would skip the most controversial <coughs> part which divides strongly the central banks, namely the bailouts provided by the central banks. And there's a huge pressure, has been a huge pressure on the European Central Bank to emulate what the Fed and Bank of England has been doing. And some people appear to be believing in the free lunch. Usually economists are a bit skeptical about the free lunch, but some economists seem to discover a free lunch. Is it really a free lunch? Well, I will, this is my view, which is not completely isolated. Even if there are some benefits, they appear in the short run. The cost would appear in the longer run. And they are not purely economic. They are constitutional. The ultimate result would be politicization of central banking and the danger of the loss of independence because central banks can remain independent if their mandate is very narrow. If it is broadened, increasingly they enter the political arena. What the consequences, reactions of the politicians? I think this is one of the risks regarding Fed in the United States. Okay. Now, there is, I think, a substantial number of research on fiscal consolidations. And one conclusion, which I find very important, is that they differ in their efficiency depending on whether they focus on uh, tax increases or uh, reduction in current spending in the sense that uh, uh, consolidation which are focused more on reduction in current spending were found to be more effective in the sample of countries investigated than those which uh, are concentrated on increases in taxes. From this point of view, I think it should be perceived as worrisome at consolidation in most uh, European Union countries, Spain, the Eurozone, and mostly tax-based, including Italy, Spain, Britain, I think. Not Eurozone, God forbid. I am not saying we are in the Eurozone, sorry. Uh, Etc. <clears throat> okay. There is a huge debate about Greece. And I've noticed the, there's a new bad word in the popular vocabulary, this new bad word is austerity. So austerity, by definition, is terrible. How austerity is defined? Usually there is no explicit definition, but the implicit definition is you cut spending. If you increase taxes, usually it's not called austerity. If you cut spending, it's austerity, it's terrible. Now, uh, from the point of view of empirical research, it is austerity which is needed <laughs> in the sense of reducing uh, current spending if it is too high, it everywhere is too high. And what about Greece? If you look at the program which has been so far implemented and not only declared, you have little austerity, relatively little reduction in spending, lots of tax increases, and very little supply-side reforms. No surprise, Greek economy is not responding well. 
to this dose of uh, measures. <coughs> now, finally, I'm coming against this background to the problems of the Eurozone, and they can be usefully divided into two, <coughs> or dealing with these problems. The first can be grouped under the heading of crisis management. You have a crisis due to overspending, either private or uh, fiscal, what do you do? And as I said, my impression is that it's an excessive focus on bailouts and disregard that bailouts cannot be a permanent solution, not a substitute for proper reforms. They are not large enough for large countries and then create moral hazard. Also, if you start reforms, uh, there's a prospect of a large, say, of a large bailout. Even if you are blessed with reform-minded uh, prime minister, say, Mr. Mondi, what about political base? Would political base support reforms if there's a prospect of easier money to get? I think it's an open question. So the, the very availability of large bailouts may weaken the determination willingness of political class, not just single individuals to reform, <coughs> which I think it is indispensable solution. So there are trade-offs. But let me move to, and by the way, one more thing. Official bailouts, to some extent, substitute the pressure from the financial markets with the political pressure. Financial markets are more or less anonymous. Of course, you can call them speculators, etc., uh, etc., et but they are anonymous. What about the pressure which is related to the conditionality, uh, uh, like in Greece? This is not anonymous. These are countries uh, like Germany, which is pushing the poor Greeks to implement austerity. My point is that uh, the substitution of the pressure of financial market by the pressure of experts and politicians is imperfect in the sense that uh, this conditionality pressure related to official lending can create very unpleasant political consequences. And we can see it now in Greece. Perhaps what was what is happening with respect to Greece was politically unavoidable. I don't know. But one should not disregard the consequences for European cohesion, or rather the lack of European cohesion, in the face of the expansion of official bailouts. So much for crisis management. And let me now move to more structural problems of the Eurozone, or what is perceived to be structural problems. Now, I think there are two, in the literature, I think there are two problems. Two statements about problems in the Eurozone or structural weaknesses. The first one can be summarized under the heading, one monetary policy cannot fit all. Which means that if you have uh, one monetary unit, you have one central bank, obviously you have uh, one official uh, interest rate, and that's true that one official interest rate cannot fit all. And besides, as long as you are a member of the Eurozone, you cannot devalue relative to your other members of the Eurozone. And I think this gives rise 
to a very heated debate, and you have, I think, a stronger version of a statement than a weaker version. The stronger version says it is fatal. So it's in the sense that because you cannot devalue, because one monetary policy cannot fit all, Eurozone cannot survive. Weaker version would say it is a complication. It is not fatal. You cannot prove it's economically impossible to overcome complications related to this, but uh, it is not fatal. The same goes for the second uh, weakness or the statement about the weakness, which can be summarized that the monetary union, that Eurozone has been a monetary union without a political union. I will develop that. But let me come to the first. And this is my comment. First of all, I think it is useful to distinguish two aspects of this uh, problem, that one monetary policy cannot fit all, meaning that interest rates of European Central Bank can be good, say, for Germany during a given time, but maybe not good for some other countries. The first one is the temporal aspect, and this is related to differences in the business cycle situation, that's true, that if, uh, say, in one country you have a boom, in other countries you have a recession, both, each of them would require a different level of interest rate. Is it a serious problem? Or has it been a serious problem? Well, too much, my knowledge, no. Because the differences in business cycle situation so far has been pretty small. There was a synchronization of business cycles across the Eurozone. It may it become more serious problem until now, but I don't, but I think it, it's importance of that was exaggerated. The second problem, it's more serious, I think, and it was neglected to my knowledge, including myself. <coughs> and this, I call it a structural problem. And this is related to the notion of the natural interest rates. To put it simply, Countries which have different level of development and different structure have different natural rate of interest, which is related to the productivity of investment. And say, Ireland and Spain probably required higher interest levels than Germany. But ECB's policies, since Germany is the largest country, was more related to the German situation. So you may have a problem that uh, for some countries, uh, European Central Bank interest rate would be too low for most of the time. What's the problem? If this is the case, then you would have a credit boom, which is dangerous, as we learned. Is it a fatal weakness? Well, I think no. If we come out with efficient instruments of what is called macroprudential regulations, meaning that if interest rates are too low, ECB's interest are too low, are there any instruments which can compensate for that? And they are. Are they good? We still don't know. For example, you can vary loan-to-value ratio. You can make housing credit less or more accessible. Uh, we, we've tried it in Poland in 2006 when we've noticed that uh, the credit, housing credit denominated in uh, Swiss francs was growing too fast. So we introduced extra experience. So I think, summing up, that temporal aspect, I think so far has not been very important. 
the structure aspect probably has been more important but neglected. And there's a, gr a, gr a going, ongoing technical work on macroprudential regulations. Finally, devaluation. You probably notice there's a huge debate on whether, whether a country develops, uh, loses competitiveness as a result of excessive growth of wages, fueled by excessive growth of overall spending. Can it adjust without nominal devaluation, meaning can it adjust without leaving the Eurozone? And this is an empirical question. I don't think we can prove that it's impossible. And how can you show that it is possible? That effective nominal uh, internal devaluation is possible by referring to countries which it did it. And this is my favorite comparison of two countries. The first one is well known, it's called PICS. Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. And the second one is less known and should be more no better known. And these are bell countries. Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Why it is makes sense to compare these two groups of countries? Because none of them has devalued. The pigs so far remain the members of the Eurozone. But they, can, they cannot devalue. And the bell have Euro-based currency bonds, and they have preserved them, so they have, did not devalue. And look at the comparison first. The Bell countries have suffered much deeper recession in 2009. Why? Because they allowed huge credit boom to develop previously. And they are small countries, uh, also hit by trade shocks. But the Bell countries have adjusted much quicker, except for Ireland, which should be shifted from peaks to Bell. So there's a differentiation. So it should be graduated, the graduation of Ireland to the Bell countries. There has been a huge shift in current account deficit, current account balance, from huge deficit to a surplus within three years. Well, as you can see, adjustment in the fixed countries much slower. And one reason for that, probably unavoidable, was the financing via the euro system. Unit labor costs, which are not a perfect measure of competitiveness, but I think uh, it gives you approximate uh, uh, vision of what has been happening. As you can see, unit labor cost, uh, except for Bulgaria, which is a very interesting story, have adjusted much quicker in the Bell countries than among the PICS countries, except for Ireland, which has been adjusting much, much faster. This is about, this is of course a very important difference in initial condition, which makes the situation of PICS countries much more difficult. The initial level of public debt or GDP has, has been much higher than in the case of uh, the Bell countries. But Bulgaria shows that you can reduce public debt from 70% in the year 2000 to 17 into 2009. At the same time, Greece was increasing the public debt to GDP. They are bordering countries, both are Balkan countries. So much for the cultural theory of economic policy. And this shows you evolution of the 10 years bonds yields, how they, to some extent, react to policies before they are completed. 
in the case of the Baltics, the bear countries in the case of Ireland. So you don't have to wait till structural reforms are advanced. You get some confidence effect from the financial markets. Okay, now let me finish with the mention of the second problem. So my, my, my response to the first problem is the following one. <coughs> we, have, we need uh, uh, this, uh, the fact that one monetary policy cannot fit all is not fatal. You cannot prove from the economic point of view it's a fatal. It's a complication, but it's not fatal. Of course, the practical politics may, can be such that uh, it makes it impossible what is economically rational. But you cannot, uh, I think, prove economic impossibility related to the fact that one monetary policy cannot fit all. The remaining task is to develop macroprudential regulations to deal with, uh, uh, with uh, interest rates being too low for some countries, members of the Eurozone, internal devaluation can be done, at least under some political conditions. So you, can, you don't have to abandon the Eurozone in order to adjust. If you do it, it is not because it's economically impossible, but political developments would prevent what is economically necessary. And finally, let me finish by referring to the second statement regarding the structural weakness of the Eurozone. <coughs> Sorry. This is very popular, I find. Many people are saying the monetary, the main problem, or one of the main problems of the Eurozone is that it is the monetary union without a political union. Very rarely they define what do they mean. As though it was completely obvious what is monet monetary union and what is political union. Most cases, I think, they think that they assume a political union as a federal state. So they say, in the United States, you have a dollar because the United States is a federal state. So uh, if Eurozone will not become like a federal state, it's going to perish. It's more like, it's not a reasoning, it's by comparison. They're not pointing out to the mechanism, I think, which makes it unavoidable, very likely. They're just assuming that uh, this is the only model. And my question is, is it the only model? <coughs> regarding the monetary union. Now the Euro monetary union, in the sense of uh, one currency, is the limiting case of something broader, which I think are hard packs areas. So groups of countries which cannot devalue, have uh, agreed that they are not going to devalue openly, so they maintain the fixed parities. And I think the essence of the Eurozone from the point of view of adjustment is that. And if you assume this broader meaning of the Eurozone, then you can see that we have uh, instances of hard pack areas in the past. And then you can inquire what were the necessary conditions for their preservation, for their existence. What were these instances? Gold standard. I am not saying now we should restore the gold standard. It's not a bad idea, but I am not insisting upon that at the moment. <laughs> I am saying that gold standard, such an arrangement existed for 50 years, and it was finished not by internal inconsistency, but by the First World War, political shock. 
To some extent, Bretton Woods, even though the pack was much weaker, resembled that. Then you have uh, currency boards, which were widespread in the past, and you had also Deutsche Mark Area. What were the necessary conditions, it appears, for the well functioning of these sorts of uh, monetary union, call it monetary unions, which uh, notice existed without a single state? I think there were at least two necessary conditions. First, fiscal discipline, which was lacking uh, in some countries of, uh, in, uh, in the Eurozone, but seems to be a necessary discipline. And it was realized from the very beginning when Eurozone was created. Second, I think, relatively flexible labor markets. Why? Because if you, if you are in the hard career, you can't devalue openly, so you need an adjustment via wages. And I think one of the main problems of Greece, Spain, Portugal, or Italy was that they entered the Eurozone with rigid labor markets. A very high labor protection, very difficult to dismiss, insiders, outsiders. And it's not an accident, notice, that all of them are trying to reform the labor markets. So my final point is that uh, these two problems are not fatal. The uh, Eurozone can exist as long as there are certain reforms which have been mentioned for a long time. I just list them. I am not saying these reforms are going to be made. I cannot assure. But as long as they are made, I think, then uh, uh, the Eurozone, perhaps in the reduced membership, can, uh, uh, can uh, function and exist. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I'm sure there will be a lot of questions um, to that excellent speech. Um, what I'd like to do is take questions in groups of three and also to encourage you to ask a question rather than make a statement. Um, what would also be great is if you could tell us who you are and your affiliation, because it's interesting to know. We have roving microphones going around, so let me take a first round of questions. This gentleman here, gentleman at the back, anyone at the top? Not yet, so, um, Thanks a lot, so uh, Professor Nick Bosenket from Imperial College. Uh, many thanks uh, for, your, for the, the, uh, the lecture. But uh, isn't there one other factor you should add to the, the list of recommendations, and that is uh, measures to promote competition in, in national economies? Was the, as your great predecessor, Kaletsky, pointed out, uh, recessions mean a rise in monopolization, cartel-like activities. Uh, they mean that uh, new entry firms have more difficulty getting funding and also uh, face higher risks in uh, labour market regulation. Shouldn't we put it, be putting much more stress on competition, particularly because certainly in the UK economy over the last, uh, uh, during the period of growth, it was in areas where there had been deregulation, such as mobile phones and, and airlines within the euro signal market that uh, there was a very significant uh, rise in, in enterprise culture, new services and new access to services, particularly for low-income groups. So shouldn't uh, the, the promotion, urgent promotion of competition by a wave of deregulation be a major factor in the, in the plan? 
Thank you. That's that's one, and then I'll take these two at the back. Thank you very much for your comments. Um, I had um, two small questions. The first one would be your position on the uh, current debate on growth in Europe, notably uh, the need to strengthen the EIB's capital and the need to uh, ameliorate the um, distribution of structural funds in the EU um, and possibly the longer-term perspective of eurobonds. And my second question would be um, on the Polish uh, stance uh, on broader topics of political integration in, in the European Union and as far as the Eurozone is concerned on the Eurozone accession. Thank you. Thank you, and the gentleman in front okay. of you. Thank you. And if you can tell I've us... I've noticed there yeah, have been already five questions. Sorry, this gentleman <laughs> asked three questions. <laughs> yes, try and, try and keep, keep <laughs> yes, them we'll there. Yes, we'll do. Uh, sorry, my name is Mark, am not, okay. Mark Barnes <laughs> and I work for the rather popular Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, <laughs> Quick question. You mentioned a lot about the credit cycle and how it gave rise to booms and busts. I was wondering if you thought there should be greater regulation of the credit cycle, and if so, who it should be by. Should it be by the central banks, and should you change their mandate to not only be one of inflation and price stability, but one of credit cycle management as well? Thank you. A good well, short question. That one. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, <clears throat> I, can't, I could not be very specific on the necessary reforms, but certainly the number six strengthening economic growth includes the regulation, the removal of anti-competitive regulations, uh, which are needed. Uh, notice how, not look at Greece, it's a small country. In smaller countries, in small countries, competition usually comes from outside. So relationship of uh, foreign trade to GDP should be high in Greece, including services. It's extremely low. It's striking, it's lower than in Poland, even though Poland's economy is much bigger. So it must be some informal barriers to competition in Greece, which are much more dangerous than formal, because more difficult to remove. But I fully agree, of course. But of course, in Germany also needs some uh, deregulation in the service sector. Now the second, well, everybody's for growth. To be against growth is like to be against happiness. The big question is not to be for growth, but how? And clearly we have to call it school of thoughts, uh, one says you need less austerity, meaning more stimulation. The question is empirical. Can you stimulate more? Can ma you make monetary policy even easier? Can you make more quantitative easing? You can. Is it productive, even in the short run? Not to mention the longer run. <laughs> can you lower interest rate below zero? You can't. Can you, or can you expand uh, fiscal spending when your public debt to GDP is 100%? I don't think so. So you have exhausted, even if you believed in the productivity of uh, stimulation, clearly limits have been reached. Unless you, unless you believe that you will be uh, financed by richer countries, but not from financial markets. In most countries, when some people say stimulation is most needed, but there are political limits to official bailouts. So I don't think this is just a blind alley. It's finished, empirically speaking. Uh, so you have to look at uh, the supply side. So removing the constraints of em employment, for example. If your retirement age is uh, relatively low, you have to increase it like it was done in Greece, or it was done in Italy, it was done in Spain. If your labor market is dual because there is extreme protection of insiders, uh, 
you cannot dismiss them as like in Spain or, 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 or in Italy. And who pays the price? Younger people, outsiders. So you have 50% unemployment among younger people in Spain. You have to do something. That's a labor supply. That's a supply side reforms. And lots of supply side reforms which would, via increased employment and productivity, spill over to the demand. Because demand cannot be created like manna from heaven. It's, even though some people say Seth Law is, was wrong, I think there's a link between the supply side and the demand side. Third, well, uh, Eurobonds. Well, Eurobonds as a solution to what? A solution uh, as a form of a bailout. So offering uh, cheaper credits to countries which cannot borrow so cheaply from uh, financial markets. Well, then ask Germany whether they agree. And how can you force this on Germany? And whether they could work? And I think there is no amount of eurobonds which would be sufficient for Italy if Italy <coughs> faced the reform. Or for France. France may be the next country. So I don't think it is uh, politically realistic and economically productive. If it is meant to be a substitute, I repeat, for most of the supply side reforms. And the question was, to say, if you understood, understand Poland's uh, what, prospects of joining Euro, yes? This is doubly academic question. First, because nobody among the politicians now would propose this in Poland, <laughs> and you can understand why. <laughs> uh, you know, you should distinguish between the support, there's a high support in Poland for the membership in the European Union and low support at present, which is not surprising <laughs> for, the <laughs> for entering the Eurozone. <laughs> and in democracy, you, you should respect sensible sentiments. Uh, second, we do not meet master criteria on, uh, on uh, budget deficit, uh, which is, last year was 5%, it's supposed to be reduced to 3 But on a more serious note, <clears throat> it's not enough to enter. You have to enter in such a shape and you have to preserve the shape to be among the northern countries. So more flexible, more disciplined. So uh, only then you can get net benefits. Because I think, as you know, membership in hard pack areas can be beneficial, but uh, the requirements for good membership in hard pack areas are more demanding than under the flexible rate arrangements. So. You have to meet these requirements. And one requirement, which I think is very important, is to have an efficient macroprudential regulations so as to be able to reduce excessive growth of credit fueled by potentially accessible low interest rate of ECB. And I don't think we are working on that. There's a lot of technical work on that. I'm not quite sure the, uh, the solutions are ready already. <laughs> Now, uh, the final question, if I remember it, referred to the reasons, sorry, to the reasons of uh, the credit booms, the private credit booms. I have to return to my short list of what I see. Just a second. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Well, if you look at empirical research, 
even before the crisis, not on during the crisis, you see quite a list of policies which are empirically, which according to empirical research might have contributed to the credit boom. So just to say the solution is more regulation is oversimplification to say the least, because there have been some wrong regulations which have contributed to the press. And I am telling you, as a member of the Dalarosier group in the European Union, we have identified wrong regulations. So not every regulation is uh, the productive one. Not, it's not enough to call a regulation prudential. A prudential regulation may increase risk-taking among the private actors. I mentioned this, but let me repeat. Basel credit weights, Basel 1 and 2. You remember, yes, there was risk weighting. So uh, depending on what, were the, uh, what the banks, commercial banks, were lending to, they were uh, uh, charged different credit weights. What was the credit weights on lending to their sovereigns? Zero. So it was cons officially considered to be non-risky. So Greek banks have been lending to the Greek government. What is more, it has remained. It was not removed. There's a battle going on. European Union is proposing the same regulation. And there are some other wrong regulations. Uh, uh, tax regulations which favor debt financing relative to equity in most countries. Subsidies to mortgage credits. They are very po politically very popular. Politicized credit allocation make the form of credit allocated by state banks, or like in the United States, you, made this, you have these famous institutions, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are nominally private, but hugely politicized, and support have been supported by both parties, perhaps to a different extent. <laughs> they are still in existence. So I think it's wrong empirically to ascribe the root causes of credit booms only or mostly to some inherent instabilities of the financial markets. I am not saying there are not tendencies, they are. But if you look more broadly across different political systems, under what systems, you have the deepest crisis. The normal tendency is to ascribe crisis to capitalists and markets. Yes, crisis, capitalist means crisis, yes. Where, under what regimes you have, there were the deepest crisis? Under socialism, where there was a total concentration of political power, which was fused with economic power. And if you had such a total concentration, then if you are uh, unlucky enough to have a crazy dictator or incompetent, you may have catastrophic policies. It happened. What about Stalin? What about Mao? 50 million people's dead. What about Khmer Rouge? So it is the total concentration of political power, excessive concentration of political power, which produces the danger of gravest crises, which sometimes are genocides. And when you look empirically at market economies, you find at least contributions of wrong policies, which may interact a certain practicality of, practicality of financial markets. So this is why, since most of these policies are still in place, I don't think we can say that we can prevent a repetition of another serious crisis in some future. 
financial fiscal crisis. We have questions lining up. Yes, There's sorry. a gentleman at the back, and there was a lady who's... There we go, a lady here, and let me take this gentleman in the middle. So, gentleman at the back first. Oh. Anthony Newton, I'm not an economist, I'm not a financier, I know nothing about finance at all, I'm a lawyer. But I'd be interested to know, as an expert, sir, how you would advise the British government to improve what's happening in this country. Thank you. Well, I would not dare to be an expert. <laughs> it's enough that I've been That's responding right. to the questions on Greece and Poland. But to respond to... I, I can only limit myself to the observations. <clears throat> Economic growth in Britain is less than expected. Inflation is higher than expected. Why? I don't know, but certainly it should... Uh, <laughs> you have huge quantitative easing. Your, I think, uh, as far as I know, but I may be wrong, uh, fiscal consolidation is largely tax-based, even though it is called austerity. Banking credits is declining. Is it the reason for... the um, Perhaps a reason, I don't know, but may, may be. If so, is it because uh, regulations are prematurely tightened? Productivity growth has mysteriously been reduced in Britain. Why? So there's a number of intriguing questions. <laughs> but I, I don't have a uh, ready diagnosis and, of course, uh, the solution. There was a question from this lady here, and there was a gentleman in the middle, if this lady would like to go first. Yes, there's a mic. Uh, Tatiana Fitz, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting uh, lecture. Uh, I have a question concerning the uh, macroprudential policy uh, that you have just mentioned and uh, which, as uh, the crisis uh, has shown, is uh, uh, one of the most uh, important macro policies uh, next to fiscal policy and monetary policy. Um, how should we define the optimal set of macroprudential uh, policy instruments? And should we have a quantitative target for macroprudential policy? And if yes, what, what should it be? Thank you. And, and just to take this oh. gentleman here, that's right. Uh, Donald Alexander, no allegiances at all. Um, you mentioned very early in your talk the question one size doesn't fit all. Uh, and then putting it in simple terms, Germany has a different situation than Southern Europe. But your solution seemed to be all that Southern Europe should bear all the strain and become more fiscally upright, etc. Uh, but it takes two to make them in, in balance, and Germany is the other half of the story. What should Germany do? Doesn't it have a part to play in making a, a Eurozone work? Okay. Thank you. Do you want to, do you want to take those two? And well, they are substantial enough to take them. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> now, I think you, when speaking about macro-prudential policy, one should distinguish between macro-prudential oversight and macroprudential instruments. Macroprudential oversight is related to the creation of special bodies, like European, there's a long name, the Systemic Risk Board. There's similar bodies in the United States, etc. Well, I don't think there's a very serious risk of creating such a body. I'm not quite sure there's a large benefit, because there's a question to what extent early warnings would be better than in the past. If you look at IMF, in 2008, IMF have not seen any problem in Greece, fiscal. And they are competent institutions. I am not saying they are just stupid. They are very competent, relatively competent. So there's an empirical question, what are the limits of um, official oversight by various bodies? There's one additional question. Where is the center of uh, oversight, central banks? 
who would criticize the central banks? You should not assume that central banks are uh, immune from errors. But if oversight is dominated by the central banks, how to, how to have a criticism of central banks? Would central banks warn that their policies are too low? So the second is instruments, and I think here, it is here where technical work is needed. I can't tell you now. My predilection would be like most economists for more automatic, less arbitrary instruments, depending on market information. But I think uh, much more work remains to be done. On Germany, well, if Germany has introduced lots of uh, reforms under Schroeder, which is a social democrat, which is a good omen for Holland, uh, socialist, <laughs> uh, why should people blame Germany for introducing these reforms? Well, they did it. Thanks to that, they've been, uh, they started to grow faster than before. Well, the fact that they started to grow faster was beneficial to other countries. They imported more. So what should Germany do? Not as a sacrifice, but uh, as a mutual benefit. As somebody pointed out, the Germany also needs, uh, Germany should support uh, the completion of single market, which is a price-side reform. And where is the biggest gap? Non-financial services. Yes? Financial services has been liberalized. Non-financial services have been, uh, uh, well, uh, liberalization has been largely limited. And there are reforms in Germany in the service sector. So this would help Germany without, and this would not a sacrifice. Yes? It could strengthen economic growth in Germany. I think we, are, we could probably do with another hour because questions are now beginning to come yeah. in in a <laughs> very substantial way. Ian in the corner, this gentleman and the gentleman at the top there, if I can do it in that order. Ian Berg from the European Institute of LSE. Hello there, again, Leszek. Um, your description of your list of things that should be changed, your, your reform agenda, many of us could probably agree with much of what, what's on your list, but with one problem. It's something for two, three years down the line, but we're in crisis today. So what is, you, is Europe doing enough to deal with the crisis to enable us to reach this promised land that you offer us? Yes. David Marsh from Umpfiff. Uh, you've mentioned Germany quite a lot. Uh, Germany doesn't seem to have a very good track record at really getting what it wants in Europe, partly because it doesn't always tell us exactly what it wants. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a tradition which is that a German Chancellor will say that he or she, in this case, is not going to do something, and then the Germans always give in in the end, they always pay. Do, do you think the Germans will always pay, or do you think we'll come to the end of this, and then what will happen when they do actually say, I'm sorry, no? Thank you. And one last question up here. Uh, Christopher Rosbach, I'm an investor. Um, I'm wondering also on the political aspect um, of uh, this discussion. We've now had elections uh, in the UK. We've yes. had uh, elections in mm -hmm. France. We've had the mess in Greece. We've also had the fall of the government in uh, the Netherlands, all over some form of repudiation of the austerity policies. Uh, you also have a situation in Germany where you have the Social Democrats running far ahead in the polls uh, in favor of more involvement in Europe and greater bailouts, and the collapse of support of the Free Democrats, 
who are the most skeptical of those kinds of bailouts. So how do you explain that in terms of your view of what should be done and what do you think that means for policy going forward? Okay, <clears throat> on the first fundamental question, let me return to the distinction uh, between crisis management dealing with the current crisis and trying to prevent the future ones. I think uh, uh, crisis the bailouts, we have at the, uh, at the limits of the bailouts as the crisis management. Uh, because what has been proposed, uh, the ECB massive engagement in purchasing government bonds, I don't think it's the right medicine. Secondly, it's politically unrealistic. So where the money would come from? From IMF? Would Chinese uh, give more money? No. Why should they? Who would give money? France would give more money to IMF to lend from IMF? Germany? It's unrealistic. And I think it's not, uh, it's not the, let me repeat, it's not, uh, it's not the proper solution. It can buy time, but it does not solve the problem. So with the risk of repetition, I think the the solution for Italy uh, in Italy with a proper package of reforms, which would, uh, if implemented and proper structure, would uh, 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 restore confidence of the financial markets. On crisis prevention, well, you have to deal separately with fiscal, financial, financial, fiscal. With fiscal, when you come overspending, there is no substitute for working for opinion leaders, which would try to make political debate more sensible, less populist, which I mentioned this before, and secondly, introducing constitutional rules and limits on fiscal expansion of the public debts, that's something which can work, which also requires engagement of the public opinion. On a financial fiscal crisis, where approximate reasons uh, excessive growth of private credit, especially mortgage credit, this requires proper diagnosis. My diagnosis is that at least part of the root causes included wrong policies. So say in the United States, one would have to abolish Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. One would have to discuss uh, Fed's policies. One would have to change credit weights in Basel regulations making uh, lending to governments uh, risky, which are, in fact, risky, etc., etc. And I think uh, lots of counterproductive regulations are still in place. <laughs> so on, this, on the prevention of this type of crisis, I would not be very, very optimistic in the, in the longer run. Finally, what was? Ah, well, it is very easy to ascribe re ascribe uh, election outcomes just to one cause, especially if it is very popular, like austerity. <laughs> but if you dig deeper, then you find that the results for elections, uh, the, the reason for the election results in France, read the commentaries. It's not only austerity. It's the style, personal style of Sarkozy, which was Grant admitted by his main opponent. <laughs> Uh, the fall of the governments, you know, political events have their own dynamic, it, they are, which is largely maybe independent from political phenomena. So do not ascribe political outcomes only to economic dynamic. And finally, countries which have uh, introduced toughest reforms have returned their prime ministers to power, the toughest in Europe, <coughs> Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, and to some extent in Bulgaria, the same government is introducing tough reforms. 
Then, even if you can prove, which you can't, that whoever introduces the necessary reforms loses, what is the conclusion? You have to find a, a completely different solution. So it's like saying, well, a patient suffers from tuberculosis, but he does not want to take antibiotics. You have to come out the equally effective medicine. Can you? Not always. So the patient which refuses the, the right medicine would suffer. That's it. Yes. It, sorry, can I just yes. intervene there? Because yes, please. <laughs> Um, on the political side, I'm really fascinated by you saying there are limits to the international conditionality, that bailouts is now having a, a backlash. You're also saying politicians should be less populist, but it seems to me that economists need to consider solutions that make the negotiation of economic interests and democracy viable. And, and to make my point, I want to give you the case of Poland and Hungary. Poland and Hungary have had the two social democratic parties over the last 20 years that have been the most liberal in the region. They were the most economically liberal of all social democrats in Central Europe. And they have both been extinguished by what is perceived by those who haven't succeeded in the market to be the failure of representing their interests. And they have been replaced by extremely populist and increasingly anti-system parties, Fidesz in Hungary and Law and Justice in Poland. And what, what is fascinating to me about the supply side measures is that it seems to me Well, but let me say this, you ascribe wrong reasons to this phenomenon and I come from Poland and I have first of all, uh, the, what you would call the, mo the, the most liberal mm -hmm. party in Poland, the so let's call it socialist, was distinguished not because of being liberal but because it was accused of corruption scandal it was a political shock and even if it was not true, it was effective Over the in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Hungary the Prime Minister was found saying that uh, they, you've been cheating all the mm -hmm. time. There was another political shock, which have contributed to the, to the... I'm not saying that policy did not play the role, but certainly they were not the only factor, and probably not the most important factor. But they were social democratic parties that presided over the lowest income, the reduction of income transfer, so for example that employment replacement rates, unemployment replacement rates for benefits in Poland, are at about 10%. That's the lowest in the OC, OECD. But we have the, the highest funeral funeral uh, benefits, you know, the highest in <laughs> Europe, you see. So there is a balance. <laughs> okay, but with a 40% youth unemployment you see, rate. You see, we, the, we have a general welfare state, only the focus is different than in other welfare I states. <laughs> my, my worry is, is really that, um, that by, mm. the danger is that by repudiating welfare, you will find yourself with a more populist politics. Look, the question is not whether or how big and how structured. Mm -hmm. I am not arguing whether we should welfare state or not because it's not sensible. But you have to be empirical if you see that you have high level structure unemployment, like in France, in Germany mm -hmm. until recently. And you can link empirically this high level unemployment to certain rigidities in the welfare state. You should abolish it in the name of the welfare. What about rigidities in the tax system so that, for example, you have increasingly low personal income tax rates and corporate income tax rates and the major tax burden is put into employers, so reducing the employment rate? That is a major structural rigidity. This depends on what is your main goal. If your main goal is uh, to have uh, 
the tax system, which was mostly conducive to economic growth, then this is the proper tax system when you have a higher share of indirect taxation and, uh, uh, and uh, lower share, corresponding lower share of uh, direct taxes. And this is fortunately the feature of Central European countries. If you are mostly uh, focused on redistribution and not in the longer term growth, of course your point of view will be different. But, but for countries which are poor and want to catch up, the longer term economic growth is a natural social goal. Talk to the people who are poor. How would they make, would, would they make rich? By transfers? How? Where from? But by focusing on the tax rate, for example, if you didn't have the tax burden put on employers, you would perhaps improve what is currently one of the lowest employment rates in Europe. Well, on that I agree. That mm. taxation of labour, if it is high, should be reduced, and this was done in Poland, then partly reversed. Yes. I've had an agreement, so I must open it up again. Uh, sir, at the back. Okay. Uh, so you and the lady behind. Well, you can, we can give up the dinner <laughs> <laughs> in the name of solidarity or something, noble goal. <laughs> Good evening, I'm an, I'm an ordinary member of the public. I've got two questions. First of all, uh, sir, you took shopping in po back in Poland in Warsaw. You must be going to Tesco's, Starbucks. And there's one thing that there's a certain phenomenon that I am not able to comprehend. A cup of coffee at Starbucks in London costs around three pounds, and we have to pay similar price back in Poland. A Polish worker earns less, less four times less than the British worker uh, at Starbucks, and his British counterpart, counterpart gets uh, four pound four times as much as his uh, colleague in British Tesco. So, can you tell me why, what, what's going on already? Uh, in 2000 well, you have to consult the Starbucks and put the pressure on them. <laughs> in 2000 yes, I advise you to be active. <laughs> I asked the same question in 2010, yes. the Polish, current Polish uh, finance minister, Mr. Uh, what's well, his name, Rostowski? So, congratulations I, for being very persistent. And, and, <laughs> and he, said, he said that this is all because of the Second World War. Two years later, has, it, has anything changed? And the second question is, um, I'm in, in my early 30s now, throughout the 1990s, uh, your surname was um, the least loved in Poland because of your reforms. Uh, in the late 90s, you were a finance minister and you introduced several reforms and then a few years later, 2004, 2002 million Poles, including myself, left the country. Uh, can you tell me why? Thank you. Well, I think you. <laughs> well, shall I leave a comment or just enough? Yes, I think that was a response. Take it as a response. The reaction of the of the public. Okay, so I try to be serious. You know, the reason is that if there is a gap in per capita income, and if it is large enough, then people emigrate. The same happened in Spain, 40 years ago, Greece. Uh, they will say Portuguese. This is why, if you want to avoid emigration from a poorer country, you have to catch up. So you have to grow faster than already rich country. This is the only way you can reduce migration. So reforms which, which strengthen the supply side are also necessary from the point of view of reducing migration. Okay. I think we have time for one very last question if I ask this lady at the back. Sorry, thank you. 
Hi, I'm a student here at the LLC, and um, I want to ask you more specifically about the reform of, um, con um, concerning the flexibility of labor markets. Um, how would that go about increasing, given the fundamental differences in culture between a lot of the countries in the Eurozone? Like, what specifically um, could, what kinds of policies could actually work on increasing flexibility? Well, I tell you a sort of an anecdote. <coughs> in the 80s, <coughs> Poland was supposed to have a special culture, which was called by Germans negatively Polnische Wirtschaft, as a symbol of a disorder. <coughs> and the many Germans thought we would never reform. There would never a market economy, etc., etc. We did reform. So this culture story is usually an excuse of not doing what is necessary for the people. So don't blame the culture. Blame interest groups, which you would have to undermine. Blame aggressive trade unions. Blame association of employers who want to protect their monopoly position. And undermine them, which requires efforts. You have to be better in the peaceful struggle with rent seekers. And then from time to time you win. If you don't do, you lose. Your country loses every time. And that's the simplest, the ultimate solution, because in every society, you have pressures to, pro to limit competition, to expand regulation, to increase spending and taxes as a result. And uh, these groups would exist in every society forever. If they do not mean the counterpart, the counterweight, the policy is drifting towards less and less final economic growth, and people pay the price. So there is no substitute for civil society, properly structured civil society. Good policies, even in democracy, do not fall like manna from heaven. They have to be fought for. I think this is a good final mm. statement. Yeah, on that, on, it's rather a classic, uh, a classic statement for the LSE, I would say. We're okay. very much in favour of civil society at the LSE. First of all, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for coming this evening, and I'd like you to join me in thanking Professor Baltzarovic for his And if you'd be kind enough to stay seated while Professor Baltarovich leaves uh, and we must leave. Ah, okay, in that case, then feel free to uh, move at your own pace. Thank you very much.